0: Last year, in the United States, there were over 420,000 missing children cases reported by the FBI. And as horrifically high as that statistic is, there is an even more extensive, long-lasting and deadly child abduction scheme. It's been in play since nearly the beginning of time. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26, Paul puts it this way. Paul writes to Timothy, telling him to conduct himself in such a way that, quote, they may come, anyone and every one of the world, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. If you think about children that are abducted, they are captured to do the will of, an, of another. That, that, that is one of those things, child abduction and sex trafficking and all of that is one of those things that just gets me <laughs> fired up. But if you think about it, many of the people that we are around daily have been abducted from their creator, their father. The International Center for Missing and Exploited Children has this statement on their website. Quote, "One missing child is one too many." And our heavenly Father feels exactly the same way about all the children that have been captured from him since the beginning. So the story we're going to look at today, it's a story that reveals our creator's our father's search and rescue plan to get as many of his kids back as possible. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners... We're all drawing near to him, to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. We'll stop there for a minute. So there's there's three main characters in this story. There's the tax collectors and the sinners, which represent everyone who's ever lived, at one point or another. Matthew chapter 26, verse 45 says this, then he, Jesus, came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of who? Sinners, into the hands of sinners. The very people that betrayed Jesus were the very people that Jesus befriended. The second character in these parables that we're going to look at today are the Pharisees and the scribes. The Pharisees and scribes, they represent really any Christian who at any time doesn't know or who has forgotten what they truly have in the Father. They've forgotten his goodness and his grace, And and I have to say I'm in that category. There's a third character, though, in this in these parables that we're going to look at. We're going to look at three parables. The third character is really the star of the story. It's Jesus. Jesus is the exact visible image of the Father, we see from John chapter 14. But he's also the invisible, is a visible image of the invisible God, Colossians Colossians chapter 1. So with that in mind, I'm sure as we go through these parables, you'll be able to determine who's who. Um, So as we jump into this story, I ask the question, what are the the unbelievers, the the tax collectors, the sinners, what are they doing? They're coming to Jesus. They're all drawing near to him. And this shouldn't surprise us because in... Luke chapter 16 verse 16 just one chapter later it says the law and the prophets were until John since that time the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it Jesus said in John chapter 12 verse 32 and I when I am lifted up from the earth will do what you know the verse I will draw all people to myself so the father is in the process and has been since the beginning of time since his children were abducted of drawing them back to himself and when i say children i mean um, at a minimum in a general sense god as our father the creator of the universe not necessarily in a personal sense in that we have rec- not everyone has reciprocated that relationship but everyone has been fathered by the father of all life okay follow in this story, what are the believers doing, the Pharisees and the scribes? And I, and, I, and I say believers. Typically, the scribes and the Pharisees are not seen in such a way, but if you look at the, the parable, one of the parables we're going to look at later in here, it's pretty clear that they, they do represent a believer, okay? Um, at least in this case, at least this group. What are they doing? They're grumbling. So as sinners and tax collectors, which, which we all fall into that category, are coming to Jesus, there's these, this other group that are grumbling. Have you ever felt grumbled against by other believers? Well, unfortunately, that's a real thing sometimes, right? Believer or unbeliever, the truth is we all need Jesus, whether for the first time or the millionth time. And I have to say, I've graduated to the millionth time club. I need him every single day. So the scene, just to set the scene here, you have these believers, these these Christians, if you will, pre-Christians, are essentially repelling the same people that Jesus is attracting. The second part of verse 2, what did Jesus do that drew these people to him? He received them, and ate with them, which is a sign of friendship, right? All of them. It says all of them were coming to him. He was befriending all of them. This is the kind of love that you cannot fake. You're not drawn to someone who just puts on a front. Jesus genuinely cares for people. Jesus always befriends the person that we often bypass. Like when he hiked up that hill in the heat of the day, sweat no doubt pouring down his forehead, foregoing food and water just to befriend one person, someone who was bypassed by everyone all of her life, even by his own disciples. I'm, of course, referring to the woman of Samaria, the woman at the well in John chapter 4. His kindness actually shocked her. It took her aback. It took her by surprise. In her own words, John chapter 4 verse 9 says, she says to Jesus, this woman at the well, as he's sitting there um, at her well, so to speak, asking for, for water, and then letting her know he had the real water, she says, how is it that you, a Jew, asked for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. She was shocked. Someone who had not received this kindness was completely floored by what he did. And it stood in such stark contrast that, that she, she didn't know what to do. She was kind of muddling her way through it from that point on, if you know the story. But in an instant, it's amazing that Jesus, with his unexpected kindness, he broke down all cultural Ethnic, gender, racial, and religious barriers in an instant. And it continued to, to he continued to do this throughout the course of the conversation. An interesting, I think, word, appropriate word for us right now in this country, in this world that we live in right now. The the, the power of kindness, the power of forgiveness cannot be underestimated. Jesus sets the perfect example of how to break down these barriers. Amazingly, Jesus did this for one person. He went out of his way for this woman, just one. And guess what? He actually, he actually bypassed the masses in, a, in the middle of, of a situation where his popularity was growing. Doesn't that seem kind of crazy? It seems kind of backwards that Jesus would leave the masses who were coming to him out of his popularity to go to one woman to befriend this one person. But that's his way. Speaking of which, continue reading. Verse 3 says, So he told them this parable, verse 3, Luke 15 What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Okay, so Jesus is here speaking of sheep, which would have resonated with his audience. Um, We learned from Smith's Bible Dictionary and other historians that um, everyone was pretty much a shepherd, whether you were wealthy uh, or whether you were poor. Regardless of your status, everyone really was a shepherd in, to some degree or another, okay? So these Pharisees, these scribes, understood what he was talking about when he said sheep. Now, sheep represented what? They represented wealth, right? Based on their many benefits. Um, you could use them for their, for their coats, right? Um, to make clothing, um, for food, for milk, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the Pharisees. Luke chapter 16, just the next chapter, verse 14, it says this the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. So the Pharisees valued money. So when Jesus is speaking of sheep, he says, If you lose one sheep, aren't you gonna go after it? And they're like, Oh yeah, oh yeah. We're not gonna lose any of our sheep. Our sheep are worth money. You know, they have value, they have worth. And in the Middle East, shepherds actually name their sheep. They give them names. And the sheep, through, through learning to, to know their shepherd, the sound of their shepherd's voice, to know their name that their shepherd has given them, they obey when they're called by name. But sometimes sheep that are newer to the flock actually wander off because they don't yet know the shepherd. They don't yet, maybe they haven't been given a name at that point. So sometimes they wander off. So um, that's what's happening in this passage. In this parable Jesus is giving, one of these sheep, perhaps one that's new to the flock, that hasn't got to know the shepherd yet, just kind of wanders off, in, in really in ignorance, not knowing that the shepherd's providing everything for that, for that sheep. Provision, protection, etc. Verse 5 says, And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. In verse eight, Shares the, uh, again, the analogy of coins, which had what? Value, right? Sheep had value, coins had value. And so anyone who would have lost, especially these Pharisees and scribes, lost anything of value, they would have searched until they found it. So what's Jesus doing here? Why the story of the lost sheep? Why the story of the lost coin? What's the point of this? The point of this is he's working to shift their paradigm, their profit paradigm, their value paradigm. He's trying to build a foundation upon which he can share his next parable, understanding that God doesn't care about anything more than he cares about you, more than he cares about any of us. And he is willing, as a result of that, to do some pretty radical things even if it costs him a lot because of his love and the value that he places on each person. So to illustrate the value of each one, every human life, it says in these parables, there's joy in heaven. There's joy before the angels of God. And who knows more the value of being in heaven than angels, right? They're they're, they're always in heaven. They understand what what it's like to be in the presence of the Father. And so when, when someone comes into heaven, the angels rejoice. They get it over even just one. Now, based on God's foundational value system that He's set forth in these two parables, so building on that, we see what He does as a result of what He treasures. Does that make sense? Verse 11, we'll continue reading. And he said, Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Okay, we'll stop there for a minute. So, property speaks of the estate or the wealth of that individual. That's what the word means. So, this father literally gave all he had. To his sons. He divided them, okay? One of the sons, remember who they represent, okay? You have one that is, that is, is lost. And the word lost, I want to camp on that for a second, the word lost is used in this chapter, actually in a, in a course of 28 verses, seven times in the New Testament, more than any other passage in the whole New Testament, the word lost is used. And the word lost means destined for destruction, okay? So this, this younger son is destined for destruction, and yet, he's called a son. Is that, is that not just radical? Um, because I, I love the perspective of Jesus. When Jesus would approach someone, he would approach someone, an individual, differently than I often approach someone when I go to share about the good news of Jesus. I go in trying to convince them of God's reality, convince them that, that God loves them and they need to repent and all this, right? But Jesus, when he goes to someone he assumes almost that they are going to turn to him. Look how he treated Judas. Look how he treated so many that he approached because he knew there's this innate thing, this unseen remembrance of the creator, the father in a general sense of every individual. And so Jesus went into that approaching That from each individual, approach each individual with that perspective, really longing and yearning to have each and every individual back with him. Okay, who had been abducted, who had been stolen by the evil one and taken captive. So he he literally gives everything that he has. And how wealthy is our father, right? The God of creation. He has everything. He can do anything, he can give anything. And And he gives literally. Um, pretty much bankrupts everything he has. He divides his wealth between his two sons, just like that. What was the perspective of the younger son? Like what, you can just hear his attitude. It's like entitled, right? Like you owe me something. After this father had been so lavish and given so much, he's like, give me, right? Give me, give me what's mine. And what does the father do? No, you need to change your attitude. You need to get your attitude right. I'm going to ground you. I'm going to actually withdraw from you. I'm going to take from you. So you're going to learn a lesson. He doesn't do that. He says, I'm going to give you, I'm just going to, I'm just going to lavish it on you, even though you don't deserve it, even though your attitude's off, your attitude's awry, I'm going to give you So he lavishly provides for both of his boys. They're, 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 they're provided for everything they need, graciously giving, expecting nothing in return, really. It reminds me of Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. I'm going to read this, and, and as I read it, think of, don't think of what necessarily, although it's important, don't necessarily think of what you need to do at least in this moment but think of what the father has done okay Matthew chapter 5 verse 43 you have heard that it was said Jesus speaking you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy but I say to you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven who's the example of this our father in heaven For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. He's good to the younger son, and he's good to the older son. He gives lavishly. He's a gracious God. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He's our perfect example, isn't he? Our Father gives to everybody, expecting nothing in return. And I ask the question do I do that? Do I give to people whether or not they love God? Whether or not they know God in the way that I do, in a saving way, do I do I lavish on them the same kind of love that my Creator and my Father lavishes upon them? Do I have that same heart? Now, often I don't. Often I'm the Pharisee. Often I'm the one who grumbles and says, "That's ah, not fair. I deserve more." But our Father is not that way. I just love His example in. Continuing in the story, verse 12, it says, I'm sorry, verse 13, not many days later, the younger son, so the younger sons received his uh, inheritance. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need so what did he do? He went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was, lo- he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So how does the younger son respond to all this lavish love of the father? He leaves. He runs from this good father. Makes sense, right? Right? doesn't make sense, but he did it anyway. We've all done it, though. How'd that work out for him? <laughs> How did that fare for the son? It left him broke and broken. I could give you a, a detailed cultural lesson on what a bummer it would be to feed pigs, but I don't think I need to because that one kind of transcends time and culture. <laughs> I mean, to feed kids, uh, uh, pigs, well, kids too. Uh <laughs> That's funny. Uh, it, it stinks, truly, sometimes. Um, and who helped him out in this condition? There was no one. No one to help him. <laughs> it reminds me of a story in Ezekiel chapter 16. If you've heard this, great. If you haven't, um, I, I remember the first time I heard this story, I, I'd never, I think I was about 20, and it just, i never forgot it. It just gripped me. Um, just the picture of, of a father, a loving Father, Ezekiel chapter 16, verse uh, four says this. Uh, so, so Ezekiel, uh, God is having Ezekiel speak to Israel and he says, and as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, right? Speaking of, of a child, an infant, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No, I pitied you to do any of the things to you out of compassion for you. But you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood of birth, and said to you in your blood, Live, I said to you in your blood, Live. Verse 7 I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and you became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread my corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also, with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. This is what the Father does for us. When there is no one that truly cares, when this son, when is it that he came to the point where no one cared for him? When he had nothing to give to them. There was nothing he could give to earn people's love. And when that point came, when there was nothing left that he could give, no one gave him anything. But then something changed. Verse 17, speaking of the younger son here, verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. (laughs) A few years ago, one of my daughters, uh, for a period of time, kept going to school and coming home, and she was missing things things of value that we had given to her. I mean, it it was amazing. We kind of almost were losing track of like, where did that go? But then at the same time, these new things began to pop up. (laughs) Uh, They were like these, you know, little dollar store trinkets, you know, uh, erasers and pencils in exchange for, uh, you know, these really valuable to us anyway, uh, sentimental things that we'd given to her. So it turns out she was at school trading away to other friends these really valuable things for these things that she thought had value but were really worthless <laughs> and pretty cheap, right? She took what was costly and traded for what was cheap. And um, I think often that's, that's really what we do. That's often what, that's what this son did. You know, he, he was given what he thought was a yellow rock, but it was really gold. But he didn't realize it at the time. He's like, oh, look at this yellow rock. It's no big deal. I can do what I want with it. And he spent it. And what is it that turned the sun back? What is it that caused him to come to himself, as it's put? Something that had not occurred to him in his ignorance before had occurred to him now. What dawned on him? I think he simply just realized how good he had it. More specifically, what is it that drew him back with zero coaxing from anyone? Now, think of it. If you're a father or a mother, this is pretty radical. So this son wasn't coaxed. He wasn't convinced. He wasn't argued with. He wasn't, you know, restrained. No, don't leave. He left on his own, and his father, father left him, let him leave, free will. But he came back on his own when he remembered two things, I believe. He remembered the more than enough father. He remembered a father that is so lavish and so kind that he gave him far more than he needed, which is what God does for all of us, everyone who's been created in one form or another, to one degree or another. Even the fact that we even have breath in our lungs is a gift, it's it's a grace, right? We don't even deserve that. So anything above that is just amazing when you think about it. But this is actually, this is speaking of material provision, of even emotional provision, but it's not necessarily speaking of spiritual provision. I know that because the, the son didn't yet know the father in a special or a personal way, right? Remember that the younger boy was unrepentant. He was an unbeliever who like the 5,000 who Jesus fed in John chapter 6, who hadn't yet tasted the bread of life, Jesus, right, spiritually speaking, Jesus still gave to them physical bread. Like we just read, Matthew 5:45. he makes the sun rise on the just and the unjust. Uh, he, he gives rain to the good and the bad, right? The good and the evil. God Rain is for what? Crops, right? Physically for crops. God is a God who is lavish, who blesses people, who blesses us all. Um, In Romans chapter 12, it says, verse 20, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. (laughs) Physical generosity, giving to the one who hasn't given to you, who you don't expect anything back from. In fact, someone who hates you, it says we're to give to them. Again, Very interesting word for what we are in the middle of right now in our country. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heat burning coals on his head. Coals were meant to provide um, heat, right? To be good. It was a good thing to have coals. Do not be overcome by evil. Man, how appropriate is this? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil. With what? With good. With good. That's the way of Jesus. That's the gospel. Jesus overcomes evil, not with evil, but with good. He gives to people what they don't deserve. He gives to me what I don't deserve. He gives to you and has given to you, all of us, what we don't deserve time and time again. Matthew 6, 25. And 33 says there, Jesus says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Jesus is like, there's things that are way more important. So don't worry about the physical things. And then verse 33 says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and what, and all these things will be added to you. God says, when you seek first his kingdom, All the things that you're worried about materially will be added to you. The quantity, it's not up to me. It's up to him. The timing of when I receive that, it's up to him. But that's what he says. He says, in other words, it's foolish for me to think that anything that I have that I got on my own, it's almost a slap in his face to just be like, well, that's just, you know, material stuff, and it doesn't matter. It's like, well, he gave it to me. I wouldn't have gotten it if I didn't receive it as a gift. So simply our heart is to be thankful, unlike these sons, for what, the God, what God has given and let it draw us to the one who's given it to us, right? There's another thing that turned this, this son back that he remembered. He remembered how badly, he realized how badly he'd taken advantage of such a good father. He had an awareness of his sin, his wrong. So not only was there, as theologians call it, common grace, right, extended to this son and given to him, but he realized in this moment that he was actually dead. Um, Romans chapter 7, I think it's verse 8, this, this, this word later on that where the father says, uh, verse 24, that my son who was dead, actually verse 32, my son your brother that was dead is alive, was lost and is down. That word um, dead is used one other time in Romans chapter 7. And, it, and Paul uses it in the context of when the law came. He, he was alive, but then the law came and he died. So at that point that, that we as human beings realize that we have done wrong, that we have offended God, then, then we are we're condemned. So it, it requires... The pursuit of a father. It requires the benevolence of a father to draw us back because we're in this place, before we knew God, of of wallowing like this this son did. But as he remembers the goodness of God, he comes back, and it reminds me of James chapter 4, verse 6, where it says, but he gives more grace. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So let's see how The father responds to the son. As the son returns in humility, he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He was truly exalted. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Verse 20 says this, second half of it. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. It's it's like waiting for him. His heart is aching for his son. And with his actions, he shows him, I love you. I know you've wasted everything I gave you. I know you've cost me everything that I had to give. But I still love you. And as you come back in humility, the Father receives you with love every time. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So he's, he's saying to his father what he had rehearsed he was going to say. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. So I, I find it interesting that he says quickly. Man, when we are in the depths of despair as a result of our sin, when we are are feeling condemned, the Father comes quickly. He knows. He knows where we are. He comes quickly, and he says, I'm going to remind you of, in this case, who you've just become, in the case of this son, or whether we've received his grace a million upon a million times, he comes and reminds us who we are again as we see later in the story with the older son who was just entitled too. He says, man, I I worked so long for you all these years and I was faithful and yet you never gave me, right? Still entitled, he had received so much and yet he said, I I deserve more. But how does the father respond to the other son? He entreated him, he begged with him. He debased himself and said, son, all that I have is yours. You're with me all the time, right? He expresses his love to his to his other son as well and and, and entreats him. And then he says, bring the fatted calf and kill it. So so take the the, the calf that we've been fattening up for the celebration and we're going to we're going to use the we're going to use the best that we have to celebrate what's just happened. We're not going to spare any expense to celebrate what has just happened. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. And, and I actually misspoke. That, that word, the alive again, is the one that's used actually in Romans chapter seven. So I had to correct myself there. That's the one where Paul says, I, re, I, saw I was alive, then the law came and I died. Okay, so that, that's the word. He was lost and is found and what happens? They begin to celebrate. So you can see the parallels between the two um, parables: the one of the sheep, the one of the lost coin, and here in this story, right? That that the father cares about every single individual one of his one of his children, um, and and it is easy sometimes to kind of I, I think go into the ditch of 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 like it's a like the whole is better than the parts, right? But the father has. A different perspective. Um, the whole is important, but the whole is only as strong as its parts. You catch what I'm saying there? Jesus cares about individuals. If he's going to go after one, then he cares about you. He cares about me. He cares about every single individual. There are zero exceptions to who he loves and is extravagant toward with his love. Most think that this story here we're actually going to stop there for the day, Um, that this story is primarily about the prodigal son. I've even heard um, many talk about this as being about the older son. Like, it's not really about the prodigal son, it's about the older son. But it's really not about either son. That's not the focus, that's not the emphasis. I know that because the father doesn't have that emphasis. When, When the son came, to the Father who created him. Did he rub his nose in his sin? Did he remind him of all the things that he had done? No. He reminded him of who he had become because of the Father and being in the Father's house. So this story is about the Father. The son's responses really don't surprise me, right? But the Father's words, His actions, His responses, that is what's really shocking. That is what runs contrary to everything in our fiber. And He's in the process, thankfully, of those who know Him, of changing us to be more like Him. But it's radical. This story should actually be retitled something like, The Gracious Father, The Friend of All. God is a friend of sinners. And who is not a sinner? God is a friend of all. And he's our perfect father. And in, and in Matthew chapter 5, like I read, we are to imitate our perfect father. I, if there's not a better example, a pinnacle, of who we're supposed to be like in this world, I don't know who there is. It's him. This story is about him. It, the headline is him. The emphasis is what he did and what he has done. Look at Judas. Man, talk about shocking. Talk about mind blowing. If you look at the story of how, the stories in John of how Jesus treated Judas, I mean, if you count the number of ways in which, with his words and actions, Jesus honored and befriended Judas. I mean, it's like, there's like five, seven, there's like multiple ways in which the father honored this man. I mean, he gave him a position of honor around the table. Um, in, in Psalm 41, verse nine, a prophecy about Judas, he says, um, God calls him, speaking, Jesus kind of spe- speaking basically says, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And we know it didn't fare well for Judas. Uh, in the parable in Matthew chapter 18 um, of the unforgiving servant, if you know that story, Jesus says to the, one of the servants who comes to the, this wedding feast, and he doesn't have the, the wedding garments, which speak of God's, God's pure white robes that he clothes us in, his righteousness, right? We bring our dirty rags, our sin, and God clothes us in his righteousness. Um, this, this individual, the father hears that there's somebody there without the, the, the wedding Uh, garments on, right? The celebration uh, outfit. And he calls him friend. And then the very next sentence, he says, depart from me into outer darkness. God befriends everybody. And, And this is so convicting for me. I mean, what a standard, right? But there's grace. And he's in the process, right, of making us more like him, that we are to be like like he is. So notice what the father, again, didn't do when this boy returned. He didn't remind him of what he did wrong. He didn't remind him of what he had cost him, even though the older son did that later. He said, look what, he's, he's ruined you. He's, he's taken everything from you. The father didn't do that. Why? Why did the father respond in such a radical way? I gotta ask that question. Because this boy was no longer a captive, that's why. At this point, he was now free to be a child. No longer a slave, but now a son reconciled to his father. We have been given the ministry of what? Reconciliation. We are to reconcile, give people the opportunity, the invitation to be befriended, reconciled back to their creator, who they were supposed to be with in the first place his identity, this son, was not defined by what he previously owed, by what, but why he, what he had been given. It was not defined by what he owed, because what he owed had been paid for. When the father saw the one he created coming back, he didn't see his past failures. He saw his son. How often... When we see someone who's maybe wronged us, do we see what they've done to us? The Father does not see you that way. When you receive the forgiveness of the Father, He just sees you. He sees who He created. And He sees you clothed in the righteousness of another. He, he sees the balance sheet that was Lopsided on the liability side, if you're an accountant, right? And it's been balanced because he poured all the cash he had into the asset column. He balanced it out. This father had such love for his son that it outweighed anything it cost him to get him back. He just was relieved to get him back again. The father's heart aches at the thought of losing even just one person. Because God values people, he has literally given everything, including the life of another, his son Jesus, to get you and to keep you. Satan captures, the father liberates. Satan takes, the father gives. Others see what we've done wrong like the older son did, but the father sees what he's done. Others see what you've done, but the father sees what he's done, his perfection. We see what we owe. The father sees what he's paid. It's time we see ourselves like the father sees us. couple of summers ago, we were going to, uh, on our way to visit the water slides in, um, outside of Ashland, and my kids were in the car, and uh, we were all excited. It had been a busy day. We were, all were overwhelmed, but kids, as you know, often don't know how to deal with being overwhelmed like their parents do, right? As, a, as an adult, you can kind of, you know, keep it under, under control, Sometimes kids can't. And one of my daughters was just losing it. She was angry, frustrated, saying things that were hurtful, angry. And I, 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 I reached back to her, and I said, what are you doing? I started telling her what she did wrong. I said, you got to stop this. you got to change. As I reached my hand back to her, she did this. She pulled back from me. And in that moment, God spoke to me and reminded me that she wasn't the only one that was overwhelmed that day. I was too. He reminded me that I was in the same boat. It just looked different for me. And what I had told her prior to that moment was when we get to the water slides, because of what you've done, you have done, you're going to sit in timeout for a while. And you're not going to get to go down the water slides. You're not going to get to swim and have fun. And then again, she, when I, after I said that, she retracted from me, withdrew from me. And in that moment, after that point, God just began to speak to me and remind me of what Jesus has done for me. And so I turn around to her. I don't know if I turned around, but I speak to her as best as I could by, while staying on the road and not going off. And I said this to her. I said, honey, guess what? When we get to the water slides, I'm going to sit in your timeout for you. And you can go play and have fun. I put my hand back a second time. And this time, she grabbed and gripped my hand and started crying. Didn't even say anything. She didn't have to. And that's, what's my, that's what my dad has done for me. He doesn't give me what I deserve. I don't get it. And it doesn't make sense. And I think that's why it's so shocking. And it stands out so much when he treats me that way. Because I'm not used to it. And I often don't give it myself. So today is not about me. It's not about you. If you're a father, we honor you. But we honor the Father who's shown us and shows us how to be not only fathers, but Christians. This story is for all of us. He wants to rescue as many as possible from the evil lying father that has captured so many billions of people. Billions have been abducted. I'm going to read this story to you. Our assignment, first, is the same. It's no different than Paul's assignment, than Jesus' assignment. 1 Corinthians 9.22, Paul says, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people. Why? That I might, by all means, that I might save some. God has befriended everyone so that he might save some. Okay? That, that kindness is a magnet that draws people back to the one that created them. And it's not that complicated to do the same. We just need to befriend people. And when we do that, guess what? There will be opportunities to share about a father who befriends them and to share with them the choice they get to make to come back to the one who made them. In Matthew chapter nine, I just read, I read this this week and it just wrecked me. Matthew nine thirty five through thirty eight says this: and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We must go and find and invite as many as possible to the wedding feast. Jesus came to invite as many as possible to the Father's wedding feast. And if the Father could have just yelled down from heaven and done that, he would have. But he sent a human being to establish relationship to people to do that. And he sent us as human beings to do that very thing. We need to find as many as possible and invite them to the wedding feast. And this story shows us how. Our best friend, the best father, shows us how. And I just want to say, if you're watching and if you're here today and you do not yet know Jesus, and you find yourself in that place of being that lost son, that younger son as we looked at today, that lost sheep, Jesus loves you. And he extends his lavish love to you. And in a moment, it's not that complicated, in a moment, you can turn to him. And when you come, he's not going to remind you of what you've done. He's going to remind you of what he's done. And if you hear the voice of someone telling you what you've done, that's not the good father. That's another father, the one who's abducted people. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you show us the best way, the only way to take back those who have been captured. God, send us out as laborers into your harvest. You have and already are drawing everyone. You promised you would. It's up to us to give the invite to the wedding feast. It's up to us to share with people the exchange that you offer, clean white robes, perfection to anyone and everyone who has, who didn't even realize how good you are. We thank you today for the opportunity to look at you, to remember you. Motivate us, God. Do revival in our hearts, I pray, to find those who are ripe for the harvest, to go out of our way for the one that we might save some before it's too late. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.